Hello, and thank you for listening to the MicroBitKey podcast. Here, we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There is so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody really writes it down. There's no manual, and it's assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan and Professor Andrew Page. Nabil is the head of informatics at the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK. And Andrew is the director of technical innovation for Theogen in Cambridge, UK. I am Dr. Lee Katz, and I am a senior bioinformatician at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta, Hello and welcome to the MicroBinview podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Page. I'm here with Lee Katz, uh, and we've got a special guest, Finley McGuire. We are at the Global Microbial Identifier Conference in Vancouver, Canada, and we have been set the challenge of being roving reporters. So, hello, Finley. Do you want to tell us about yourself? Oh, thanks for introducing me. I'm Finley McGuire. Um, I'm an assistant professor at Dalhousie University in Computer Science and Epidemiology, which is right on the opposite coast of Canada seven hour flight away but you're not canadian i'm not canadian i'm originally from scotland and have permanent residency but not quite citizenship yet as many people found for this conference the canadian immigration service is very slow and uh, just rejects people on occasion yeah not, not very good for a global company. so uh what i want to know from you finley is what's your background do you know are you a computer scientist or a microbiologist or molecular biologist do you know where'd you come from I am a complete fraud in both of my academic affiliation departments, where I have no qualifications in computer science or epidemiology. I come from nice. a microbiology—I mean, I come from a microbiology background. Did undergrad in microbiology and then a PhD that was meant to be 50% wet lab, dry lab work. Before I rapidly realized wet lab is the worst, and I wanted to get as far away from it as possible, but entirely computational. And so, what is your actual current affiliations? So I'm an assistant professor at Dalhousie University in the Department of Community Health and Epidemiology in the Faculty of Computer Science. That's a mouthful. Yep. Uh, I'm also pathogenomics bioinformatics lead for the Sheriff Hospital Lab, which is a large med micro lab based at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center in Toronto. Okay. So how on earth do you do that many jobs simultaneously? Are you just one of these wonder people who works 80 hours a week, or is it just how you have to do it to get funding in uh, this country? I was, I was in a position where I was lucky enough to, you know, be finishing postdocs and uh, got two separate, two job offers. And I was like, I know, I'll come up with a, I'll negotiate with both parties and come up with a job that's a fusion of the best parts of both. And that's how I ended up with two separate jobs. And you're paid twice, yeah? Uh, mostly paid once. And then, some, <laughs> then, then I, but I am, there is, there is some funding from the uh, clinical lab, yeah. Yeah. Now, Lee is uh, very quiet here because he's currently eating a cookie, but, uh, you know, we'll let him off. Well, let's get into the meat of it. We're at the GMI Global Microbial Identifier Conference. How did you find yourself here? Thanks to Dr. Emma Griffiths, who is my co-chair in the Phage Data Structures Working Group and one of the organizers of the conference, basically invited me along. I'd kind of GMI, I'd kind of missed GMI, I think, by being more in the purely public health side rather than the broader global data sharing of microbial data. And so what are your actual interests academically day to day? You know, I know you do a bit on data standards and you, and, um, you do a little bit on uh, AMR. So, you know, wh where's your real passion? Basically making genomic data usable for clinical decision making, real world actions, as well as some of that public health kind of pol driving public health policy and decision, and, uh, decision making and sort of 
developing tools to try and support that. So really the whole gamut from individual patients to global health kind of policy. Jeez, that's a very big gambit. And uh, now, <laughs> do you do animals or just human? I do animals as well. So we 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 had recently identified, or recently last year, we found uh, SARS-CoV-2, which had jumped into deer, then back into humans in Canada. Uh, that's nice. So we let that work. So a lot of zoonotic virus. Work. Was there many uh, SNPs when he when it went back in? Seventy-six new mutations, highly divergent. Jesus Christ! It was like a massive long branch. Yeah. We actually identified the human case. Before we found out about the deer, because there was a human case that was like massively divergent from anything else. Yeah, that's really good work, actually. You know, and all these hidden links that we don't necessarily normally uh, see that go on within nature in the environment. Yep. So, so like you, you're obviously in, integrated in this community with GMI with Phage, and we just had the first few sessions here. Um, I guess I won't name them all here, but what kind of what struck you the most? What 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 are you thinking about? What what do you think is unresolved right now? I mean, as again, as kind of mentioned a few of the questions, like the devil's always in the details. Like I think, you know, the guiding principles for data sharing with WHO actually did integrate a lot of kind of comments and recommendations really well and come up with, yeah, those guiding principles, but that kind of operationalization step that like we've seen with, you know, Malban's work with Josephina and some of the PulseNet kind of work, but mm -hmm. kind of extending that more broadly, especially to that one health conception, which has become a critiqued word, if not a meaningless buzzword in some contexts. It has been abused. <laughs> but like, really, it should be even more broad. Like We have things like we have plant pathogens as well, which have huge health impacts, mm. which have a lot of the kind of same mechanisms of resistance that we see in antibiotic resistance, antimicrobial resistance, that is a completely separate, separate ecosystem that should be part of that One Health discussion. Plants are hard, though, you know? Why don't do well, that? Yeah, but the pathogens are plants. True, true. <laughs> Bacteria, viruses, and a lot of tricky yeah, fungi, yeah, yeah. and then like nematodes. I do suppose that we're pretty foodborne focused this morning. Actually, we are. Yeah, but that's okay because I come from foodborne uh, background. So, yeah, yeah. okay fine. with me too. But okay, but that's good noticing that. So, but I feel like foodborne was like really one of the drivers of WGS being adopted. Big time, yeah. Right? Particularly in the US. Sure. I mean, even the. A couple of the speakers said that they followed the PulseNet protocols, even though they're not part of the US. Mm. And then, uh, obviously, Genome Tracker and all that kind of project, getting sequencers out into all the state labs in the US, you know, that's pretty good, you know, and set them probably 10 years ahead of everyone else. Yeah. Um, I guess I won't comment too much on that since we're <laughs> GMI and, and I want to focus more on the guests, but yeah. Yeah. It was interesting, actually, um, the different models for data sharing that uh, the WHO had, you know, and it was very clear one was very aimed at uh, GIS-Aid, like it was like the GIS-Aid model, but they didn't say it. And then the <laughs> other was the INSTC model, which is, you know, share everything with no restrictions. So, you know, what, what's your opinions on those two different sharing models? And, uh, <laughs> you know, obviously, you know, you're not Steve Myers or anything like that. No, but did receive a phone call from him. Um, Wait, are you Steve Myers? <laughs> no, but I did receive a phone call from Stephen Myers early in the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, I like the the a lot of the concerns that Gisade was created to alleviate are important concerns. It's true. Yeah, no, no, there, there. Yeah. The the where there's a bit of a challenge in culture is it's a bit like that kind of public health and sort of equity sharing data ownership model 
is very much at odds of what had been the prevailing momentum within genomics of entirely open data, open tools, open resources, mm -hmm. without any restrictions. And so kind of trying to square that circle and resolve those two different sets of concerns is a challenge and a thing that we're actively discussing a lot. What I find really interesting in terms of data sharing and access is crossing that bridge between human and agricultural is often the agricultural data is way more locked down and harder to share than the human clinical data is. Which is crazy. You wouldn't think that, but actually it is, yeah. Well, and it's basically because <clears throat> there's a lot more, you know, there's a lot more laws for the human side, but there's a lot more um, lawyers in the agriculture, agri-food business. Yeah, and you can see when it goes wrong, like then it's a, it's a big problem. Like, uh, what was it? Um, baby formula in uh, New Zealand years ago where they thought they had... Um, was it botulism or anthrax? One of those mm. in oh, the, wow. <clears throat> I think it was bot actually in the in baby formula. And then, obviously, it's a problem. And so they dumped, you know, like a billion dollars worth of um, baby formula. And it turns out actually, you know, it was just a lab test, couldn't get down to resolution uh, that they needed to detect uh, bots. Yeah. That's incredible. I mm. know. Oh, <laughs> and apparently they had no, um, no positive controls within the country and things like that, you know. And then uh, this is I'm going back here is thinking about the talk. Um, the seek the people they did sequencing, but then they didn't have the required machines to analyze the data, and then they had to kind of jerry rig stuff, and they weren't allowed to move the data around, and all these kind of complications, mm. which just led to delays. Yeah. Hopefully, all fixed now. Yeah, well, yeah, fingers crossed. One thing I find interesting on like the food <clears throat> contamination angle is obviously there's a lot more forms of food contamination than microbial. So, like, where's the intersection of data exchange with, like, other forms of food contamination, like, within organizations like the FDA? Is it a completely separate set of labs that are doing, like, mass spec and other kind of pretty much assays yeah. for that? <clears throat> there, are, there are things like that. Um, I, know, I know that FDA has, like, their inspectors, and then they have, like, CIFSAN, and CIFSAN will do the whole genomics workflow, and mm -hmm. they can do that. So I, I know this divided. And then we have um, FSIS for agriculture. Mm. So everybody has their own specialty and and their domain. It's similar in the UK. Like uh, it's quite split up, and then there's different government committees for each different type. You know, if it's mm. chemical contamination or if it's microbial or, or whatever. So, yeah, I guess it'd be pretty bad if you had multiple different types of contamination in one one uh, food source. Mm. Yeah, very very bad. Well, years ago there was. Um, the tuna scrape outbreak in 2012, I believe. Is that the sushi one? Yeah. And um, from what I heard, like basically third hand, not, so this isn't primary, but like what I heard is like people in India were like using raw clamshells to like scoop out tuna. And mm. um, there are just like so many different ways to where that could go wrong. <laughs> yeah. And, and, it's it's a wonder that only we only had to get FDA involved, but it's like how how many different agencies would have had to get involved if more pathogens were there? Yeah, I mean this is going back to your well-traveled salad. Do you know? Do you remember those? Yeah, the well-traveled salad. Do you not remember that? For for about a year, every single uh, presentation in our area had this picture of a salad. The well-traveled salad showing the, all the different bits of the salad and where it came from in different countries. You know, you could have had sweet corn from like three different countries in your one little salad. You could have had, you know, tomatoes from one place, lettuce from another, uh, peppers from another. And, you know, where does contamination come in from? Um, 
when you do have a problem, well, you know, mm. it's very difficult to track it down, even with sequencing. <laughs> we we had the example also in the U.S. Um, it was like in a nice New York Times article in 2009, the, um, the hamburger that comes from all the different places in the U.S. or in the world. I mean, the U.K. had the hamburgers that didn't come from cows. <laughs> Ooh. Well, at least horses are safe. <laughs> it was safe for human consumption. It's, you know, the mad hamburger is, that's a problem. Oh, uh, yes. You know what I say about horse? Is nay. Nay, sir. <laughs> well, it's very expensive in France. Like, a, you have specialist uh, horse butchers, you know, and it is quite a premium. But I think the horse meat that's being used in this case was uh, very low quality. You know, old nags. <clears throat> and actually, uh, I recall it was discovered by the Irish food safety people. At the end of the year, they had a bit of money left over. And they wanted to spend their budget. So they were like, oh, yeah, just go out and you know buy some ready meals, whatever, um, in a few supermarkets. And they did. And then they went and sequenced them. And then they found, oh, it's not beef in this cheap lasagna from this supermarket. It's actually mm. something else. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. And it was just for Christmas, and then it all broke, and everyone was very upset, particularly since a foreign country had detected the stuff in the UK and not the UK with uh, safety authorities. Mm. But there you go. That's how yeah. it is. Let's bring it back to GMI. <laughs> oh, sorry, GMI, yeah. Yes. yeah, yeah. So GMI is like phage, <laughs> except different. Yeah, there was some... I think there's still kind of an active process kind of going on to kind of delineate and do a bit more there was a lot of discussion about having a landscape kind of evaluation about all the different groups and organizations kind of active in this space and you know the dividing and conquering of what people are actually doing and covering yeah i do i do think phage just depending on the working group does does a good job of like doing a lot of boring but useful specific stuff trying yes. not to get too lost in the weeds of like broader global strategy and focus on okay, how do we have a pipeline with more than one AMR detection tool in it? Yeah, and actually putting it into, you know, like something useful like a Python, you know? Yep. So you can actually go and use it, not just have a document that people will read and file away after they weigh it. What metadata should you collect and put it, and how do you put it in a database? And like actually describe it in a spreadsheet so that people actually understand, and then have the lookup tables between different things that people use. Like that's actually really useful stuff and I think that's the practical side that is can be missing from some of these international collaborations. But devil's advocate, like, why shouldn't GMI be doing that? I mean, I, I think I, I mean I think they have done in a lot of spaces, um, like in the past. Okay. Um, but I think they also were doing a lot more of that kind of strategic, global, almost more politics angle as well. Yeah. Certainly, some of the working groups, which is a whole set of challenges. I'm I'm really doing devil's advocate because I've been in that technical working group for GMI also. <laughs> uh, which uh, working groups in? The standards and data and al analytics part. And are you in the phage rival one? Are you? I'm technically in there, but I'm inactive. I would I would say I'm definitely inactive and skipping all the meetings and telling yeah. Emma to stop including me in authorship. She's <laughs> <laughs> very inclusive. She is. She's a very good coordinator. So the big question is, right, Tim Hortons, what is your favorite donut? Favorite donut at Tim Hortons? Because we are in Canada, you know? Yeah. Wait, 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 wait. Do you like Tim Hortons? That's okay. 
Okay, all right. That's our, Honestly, that's like, if I go to the Tim Hortons, I often, it's often get the bagel and cream cheese more than the donut. Oh, okay. So, uh, you know, what would you recommend to us foreigners, you know, who are obviously being a local? <laughs> um, I mean, you know, Timbits are the usual classic go-to in the sweet end, which are just little donut balls of various types. You can get a mixed... Get a mixed set with different different sprinkles and flavors on them. That way you can sample lots of different donuts. They're often a feature of our Epi department coffee. So 50 Timbits. Yep. There you go. <laughs> I, I walked there yesterday and got a Boston cream donut. What's your reaction? Knock yourself out. <laughs> <laughs> Not very Canadian, actually, if it's Boston. I know. Oh, I, I do remember an undergraduate. Apparently, like Tim Hortons like opened... You could buy it in... A spar in the UK for a brief period of time. Oh, okay. And I remember like one of the Canadians get very excited and us having to get the train out to like Randall, like Didcot or Banbury or something to go to the spa <laughs> in the gas station to buy Tim Hortons donuts. That's, uh, yeah. <laughs> it was okay. not worth the trip. <laughs> yeah. Sounds kind of gross. I mean, tomorrow. And anyway, we digress. <laughs> well, we uh, end it there and uh, we will come back with some more updates uh, later from the conference. Yeah. All right. Thanks thank very you much. very much, Finley, for uh, that little discussion. And so we're uh, here talking to Emma Griffiths, who is one of the organizers of this lovely GMI conference and has just fed us very, very well. Thank you very much, Emma. No, and actually, we're in a very beautiful room here at the moment, it looks like. Where, you know, if you're an evil genius, you have all of your, uh, you know, minions around in, in a circle. Well, that is the plan. Decisions. That's the plan for this meeting. Absolutely. World domination. <laughs> anyway, so um, why can't ChatGPT replace ontologies? God damn it. This is a question that I asked uh, last week at the conference. Um, and then left. Because, because, because the lo- <laughs> you dropped the bomb and then left. Um, I uh, refuse to answer these questions right now. Um, Too stressed? Yes. Also, um, I don't even know what to say. <laughs> I have a question for you. Okay. I went to Tim Hortons last night. <laughs> okay, this is the kind of question I can answer. Good. Right. Tell me if if getting a Boston cream donut was the right decision last night. Oh wow. This I don't I maybe I want to answer the chat GPT question more than <laughs> oh, the Boston it's cream. Um now, I think we talked about this on Slack. Yeah. And a wise man once said you know, your preference of donut really depends on your mood and your circumstances. So really, Lee, I would have to ask you, what were your, what was your mood and your circumstances? Did Boston, did the Boston cream feel right for you? Because that would not be what I would have recommended. Can I tell you what I did before? I think you should. Before I got that, thanks for the microphone. Okay. Before I got that Tim Hortons donut, I stopped by Jappa Dog. <laughs> Fantastic! Did you love it? I loved it. I got yeah, a I got a wagyu get? beef with like some some mayonnaise, onion, seaweed topping. But like from a cart, right? Not from the shop. I got it from the shop. Oh no, you did it wrong. Damn! You have to get it from the cart. Okay. But but I'm glad that you enjoyed it. So that's good. That's and great. That, well, I walked outside as though I got it from a cart, and ate it on the sidewalk. You really need to get. It cart that means just means you're gonna have to do it again and then i got the boston cream donut after that right <laughs> they, they have poutine <laughs> in the restaurant too <laughs> yeah oh i don't know if i can vouch for jappa dog poutine but poutine is poutine 
well, that's con- that's a controversial thing to say, actually. Okay. But it's better to have some poutine than no poutine. I sort of remember this is this is coming full circle because I sort of remember Jappa Dog being somewhat of a weird flavor profile, and maybe it was created with AI. <laughs> and so, okay. Fusion. It was right. fusion. It, there were weird, there were weird flavor profiles back then. I think Jappa Dog might have, might have got inspired by it. I'm, mm. I'm trying to remember the news article, but anyway, why shouldn't we do um, GMI with ChatGPT? <laughs> Gentlemen, I am dropping this mic, taking no more questions at this time. Thank you very much, Emma, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. Follow us on Twitter at microbinfi. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.